Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Before we begin, we want to tell you about a couple of live online events. First, on Thursday the 27th of August, we've got Rebecca Rag Sykes on The Secrets of the Neanderthals. She's going to show how advances in archaeology over the last three decades have revealed a sophisticated picture of Neanderthal culture and the Neanderthal mind. Val is hosting that one. And then on Thursday, 3rd of September, we have Nobel Prize winner Paul Nurse discussing one of the biggest questions of all, what is life? Rowan's going to be hosting that one. So go to newscientist.com events to find out more about joining us and our live online events. Welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the week's most compelling news in the world of science. I'm Valerie Jemison. I'm Creative Director of New Scientist Events. And I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. This week, we're joined by New Scientist reporter Claire Wilson. Hey, Claire. Hello. Nice to be back. On this week's show, we're discussing the controversial finding that mindfulness and meditation can actually be bad for your mental health. We're also investigating an incredible hyper-fast star that travels at 8% the speed of light. We're looking at the news that the ice in Greenland may be doomed to completely melt, maybe. And we've got the latest findings about the world's most resilient and toughest animal, the tardigrade, which is a personal favourite animal of mine. But first, we've got a story about the definition of time and how, in fact, time itself needs to be redefined. How do we possibly redefine time? Well, it's not as outrageous as you might imagine. So if you think about it, you know, clock time is something that we made up. You know, we invented the basic units of time, the hours, the minutes uh, and the seconds that subdivide the day. But they're not completely arbitrary, are they? You know, those units are subdivisions of one day, which is the time it takes for Earth to rotate around its axis. Yeah, exactly. And one second was originally defined as one eighty-six thousand four hundredth of a solar day. But that's the problem. It's not very accurate because the planet isn't a perfect metronome. So its rotation varies by microseconds every day and it slows ever so slightly over time, meaning that a second gradually gets longer. Okay, so we need a measurement of a second that's independent of the movement of the Earth. Right. And to do this, to get a more accurate definition of a second, physicists have turned to atomic clocks. These are clocks that tick according to oscillations made by electrons inside atoms. And the, OK, so and this allows a very precise definition of what a second is. Yes, very precise. So brace yourself for the official definition of a second. So it is the duration of 9,192,631,770 periods <laughs> of the radiation corresponding to the transitions between two hyperfine levels of the ground state of the cesium-133 atom. 
Wow. <laughs> it's quite a mouthful, isn't it? But that's the official definition set by Time Lords in 1967 at the 13th General Conference of Weights and Measures in Paris. Uh, set by Time Lords. That's good to know there's an actual Time Lords looking after us. <laughs> I know, I know. And we do actually need this level of precision. It underlies a lot of the modern technologies we rely on, from GPS and smartphones to the internet and electricity grids. Cesium clocks like this have an accuracy of one second in roughly 100 million years. Perfect. Job done. Well, amazingly, it's not precise enough. Strontium and ytterbium are better atoms to use to define a second because they're more stable and they oscillate much faster than cesium. But until now, physicists haven't been able to find a way to measure all these oscillations. Now they have, and it's increased the accuracy by nearly two orders of magnitude over the cesium-based clocks. And this means that an ytterbium clock would lose a second only once every 16 billion years. And that's a length of time that actually exceeds the age of the universe. Uh, OK, so that meeting in Paris in 1967 defined a second with reference to a cesium clock. But now we have an ytterbium clock that's more accurate than the definition of a second. Yes, and that's hugely embarrassing for time researchers. Uh, and that's why we need a redefinition of time itself. You've got it. Okay, so metrologists, those are the people who measure time. They're now discussing the idea of whether to vote for an official redefinition of the second at the next General Conference of the International Committee for Weights and Measures. And that's scheduled for 2026. You know, they like to take their time over these things. Ha ha ha. Um, <laughs> It's good to hear ytterbium getting some, some glory. You know, you don't hear about ytterbium very much. So, you know, I hope they do use that as the definition of a second. But, you know, I, I don't want to become like a toddler here, but um, what is time? Can we, can we ask a question? You know, does this help us understand what time is? Oh, toddlers ask the best question. Don't diss the toddlers. <laughs> yes, what is time? Not what time is it, but what is it? Yeah, what? Is it? Because I, I can understand that time is a measure of entropy. That's the second law of thermodynamics. So that says that there will be an increase in disorder or entropy with time. So things break down and decay with time unless there's some energy keeping them together. OK, right. So that's that's one thing. But then didn't Einstein say that? Well, he showed that time is just a dimension. It's the fourth dimension. And there's nothing special about now. And there's nothing special about you know signifiers such as yesterday or tomorrow or first or second or third you know there's nothing real about those things well we do touch on this in the magazine story and i think the answer is yes more accurate clocks will help us in our understanding of many things including time itself if you put one of these hyper-accurate atomic clocks in space, for example, you could test Einstein's theory of gravity with greater precision than ever before. And that might help point to a quantum theory of gravity, which is something we can't describe at the moment. These hyper-accurate clocks might also help us detect dark matter and even detect changes in the so-called constants of nature. One of these is the fine structure constant, which dictates the strength of the electromagnetic interaction between charged particles. All of these things will have a bearing on our understanding of time itself. Where are you, Val, on the idea that time is an illusion, that our perception of time is just something that we have because we're animals, but that it doesn't actually correspond to the underlying true nature of time? Oh, it's so difficult to wrap 
your head around this because, you know, as you say, time is just so ingrained on us. It's such a part of the human experience. Time is definitely not what we think. And again, we turn to uh, the maths and we turn to Einstein. So Einstein showed that time is not a constant ticking universal clock that's the same everywhere. It changes according to your relative speed and also changes according to the influence of gravity. And tons of experiments have been done on this, proving that um, Einstein was right on this. And many of those use atomic clocks. There was one quite recently where there was an atomic clock running on, on top of a mountain in the Alps. And it found that a year in the Alps is 84 nanoseconds longer than a year lower down near sea level. And that's because clocks run slower at sea level than they do at the top of a mountain where the tug of Earth's gravity isn't quite as strong. But you mentioned entropy and the physicist Carlo Rovelli has shown that the idea that we have of time having an arrow, a direction that, as you say, is in the direction of increased entropy, that's just not true. Ah, (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know, but we don't have time to go into that here. (sighs) Anyway, I'll post a link to a talk Carlo gave where he goes into why time is an illusion. But in the meantime, do check out the story in this week's magazine. And that's the end of the time gags. (laughs) Good. And now it's time for Climate Hope or Doom, where we take a look at the latest news to do with climate change and decide how f***ing hopeless it is or how much gritty optimism we really need. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, obviously we are being whimsical with the title of this segment because we must never give in to doom or doomerism as it's officially known in climate change circles. Oh, I didn't know it had an official name. Yeah, it does. Uh, But anyway, this week we heard the news that Greenland seems to have passed a tipping point where it becomes locked into losing all of its ice. There's a massive amount of ice locked up on Greenland at the moment. It's the second largest ice sheet in the world after the one that covers Antarctica. And there's so much ice on Greenland that if it all melted, it would raise sea levels around the world by six metres. hell. Yeah, it, it is a shocking thing to consider. You know, you're you're looking at London, Shanghai, Mumbai, New York, most of Florida, and thousands more miles of coastline around the world. That that would all be gone. Uh, it would take a long time, maybe thousands of years, but eventually, if all the ice on Greenland melted, we'd we'd see this rise of six meters. So, what's the story? Right, so scientists at Ohio State University have looked in detail at the loss of ice from Greenland over the last 30 years and have tried to predict how this will continue in the future. Their analysis finds that the ice sheet is now in a state of constant loss. So it's losing more ice each year than is replenished by snowfall. So I saw one headline on CNN saying Greenland's ice sheet has melted to a point of no return. Right, but call me an optimist, um, or even naive for the sake of argument. What if we just stopped global warming? What what an outrageous thing to say. I know, what, I know. What if we did? Well, actually, they've, they've modelled this, and one of the researchers says even if the climate were to stay the same or, or get a, a bit colder, the ice sheet would still be losing mass. So that's why it's a tipping point. That's what it seems. But, you know, tipping points are notoriously hard to define and to measure. And we might not know, you know, for sure how close we are to one or even if we've already crossed it. 
Uh, we do know that a lot of ice has already gone from Greenland, uh, enough to make a measurable difference in its gravitational field. But there's been a lot of climate scientists after this study, after this Greenland study has just come out, saying that it doesn't necessarily mean that we're locked into losing all that ice. Now, we've covered a lot of this in the past, haven't we? We have. You know, tipping points are huge deals, so we are all over this. I'll tweet a link to a story from a few years ago by one of our reporters, Michael LePage. Uh, he totted up the amount of ice that we can be quite sure we're going to lose eventually and found that a five-metre sea level rise was already locked in. But that wasn't taking into account anything from Greenland or East Antarctica. That's five metres in a gradual rise over centuries as the ice melts. Okay, so let me just get this straight. Okay, so a world-changing amount of sea level rise is already locked in. But that's not including Greenland, as we can't be sure it's past the tipping point for no return yet. That's, that's exactly right. So what can we do? As always, we have to cut emissions, uh, even if the Greenland ice sheet is headed for a complete meltdown. Curbing the greenhouse gas emissions today will at least delay the process and maybe delay it by thousands of years, which will buy us time to adapt. Time out. Time for a regular reminder of the bargain offer available to you as a listener to our podcast. You can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist magazine using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout and you'll get access to a whole wealth of stuff available to subscribers. Yeah, there's loads of premium content, videos, features, interviews and an amazing archive of work going back years and years. POD20 at checkout at newscientist.com gets you your bargain. Next up, Claire, you've been investigating some new research that suggests mindfulness and meditation, which are common stress-relieving techniques, can actually leave people worse off. Let's start with the definition of mindfulness. What is it exactly? Well, it's an important question because different people uh, use it to mean different things. Um, it's a form of meditation, and meditation has obviously been practiced for thousands of years uh, by various religions, chiefly. In recent years, mindfulness meditation has grown in popularity in the West. So meditation is when people try and focus, try and clear their minds and become emotionally calm and mentally clear. Mindfulness is a particular variety of meditation. It's when people really try to pay attention to the present moment and focus on either internal sensations or sensations coming from um, the environment around them. Yeah, I've, I've done it quite a lot, actually. I quite like it. I get quite a lot from it, although, like, ridiculously, I don't seem to have time for it at the moment. But what's the problem with it? Well, for many people, there isn't a problem and they find it helpful. And many people swear by it and say it has helped their mental health. And um, even many NHS bodies recommend it as a way of preventing relapses in depression in people who are prone to it. The thing is, there have been people who say mindfulness uh, not only doesn't work for everyone, but in some people it can actually make them worse, make their depression worse or their anxiety worse or perhaps even trigger these conditions developing in people who haven't experienced them before. How could that happen? 
Now, that's the problem. We don't know exactly what's going on um, because this is a really understudied phenomenon. Um, the researchers in the, of the latest study that I wrote about, um, they speculate that perhaps what's going on for some people uh, is that when they're sitting still and really focusing their attention on their inner thoughts, that could become disturbing for them, especially if they have underlying anxieties. They might cope better not really dwelling on these problems. Uh, in some people, it can encourage uh, rumination, which is a term that psychiatrists use to describe what happens in some people with depression, which is when you really focus on negative thoughts. Some people do better when they keep themselves busy and active. And um, unfortunately, some people have even reported uh, very severe mental health problems arising from meditation. And that seems more associated with um, when people go on very intense meditation retreats where they're doing, for instance, eight hours of meditation a day. And I spoke to one woman and it triggered a psychotic breakdown for her and she didn't recover for three years. Oh, my God, that sounds horrendous. And that must have been really distressing. Um but do we know, you know, is she an outlier? Is there a way of quantifying how common that sort of thing is, that meditation could lead to a worsening of your mental health? So that's what the new research has done, which is to attempt to quantify how common this is. Now, my impression is people reporting these very serious side effects of becoming psychotic or suicidal is very rare. Um, but in terms of looking at anybody who experienced any worsening of their mental health, of their depression or anxiety, or perhaps the onset of new depression, that is a bit more common. Uh, sci these scientists who were at Coventry University in the UK, they looked at all previous studies of meditation, and they counted up the number of people who experienced any negative effects. And they concluded it happens in about 8% of people. And that's about one in 12 people who try it. Okay, so not, not too many, not, not very high proportion of people. No, you're right. But the researchers say that could be an underestimate because a lot of the studies of meditation are done by enthusiasts for it um, or by teachers of the practice. And so some of them might have been a bit biased in how they set up the study. And some of them actually say in their study they didn't set out to count negative effects or that they only counted very serious negative effects. So they would have ignored somebody who just had a slight worsening of a pre-existing anxiety, for instance. Yeah, you can imagine if people going on retreats or going on, on courses are enthusiasts. So, you know, if you don't want to do it, you don't do it, right? The problem is, whatever the true figure is, the problem is that mindfulness is advocated by people uncritically, as if there's no risk from it at all. So anyone who is persuaded to try it on that basis doesn't have the full facts uh, if there are any risks of harm from it, people deserve to know that, um, especially if they feel they might be a bit vulnerable to those kind of effects in the first place. OK, so, you know, there should be a health warning on it. Um, yeah. And so doesn't doesn't any kind of treatment for mental health problems, they, they usually do have a uh, they do carry a risk of harms as well as benefits. Yes, that's absolutely true. And so we, we shouldn't really be too surprised by the finding that meditation and mindfulness carry risks as well. I mean, even pharmaceutical antidepressants have a risk of side effects for some people. Even talking therapies like psychoanalysis and um, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, they can also leave people feeling worse off than before they started. Um, interestingly, the rate of harms from psychoanalysis has uh, previously been estimated at between 5 and 10% of people who have it end up worse off. So this side effect rate for meditation of 8% is in the same ballpark and seems plausible. 
But I don't think that schools, for instance, would dream of giving out psychotherapy to all their pupils routinely. And that's partly because of the suspicion that it might not help everyone. It might sometimes leave people worse. Um, but schools are routinely trying to teach school children mindfulness without any acknowledgement that there are potential risks as well as benefits, because it is promoted as this universal panacea. I, I think it's being overhyped, really. Yeah, um, we'll tweet a link to your story. It sparked a massive comment storm mm. on social media when we posted that. And most people who've read the piece, Claire, do actually seem to be accepting of it. Um, I, I picked out a comment to read out. Here you go. This is responding to the headline that says that mindfulness can worsen depression. And the comment says, this is exactly what depressed people have been saying, but we've been told that we don't know what's good for us and we should do it anyway. How many depressed or anxious people have been told you should meditate? I'd say most of us, as if we need to ruminate even more. Oh, that's interesting. That's going, uh, that's referring to the rumination yeah. problem. Um, but there are certainly people who have been railing against the piece as well. So why do you think it's, it sparked such a storm? Um, that's a really good question. I've always found that people get very passionate about things that have personally affected them. So these might be people who have felt who have tried it and it has benefited them. I have seen similarly vocal responses whenever I've written anything about the side effects of antidepressants, too, by the way. You just provoke a reaction, don't you, Claire? <laughs> um, so I've never been in that situation myself but I can imagine that if you have been in a very bad place mentally and something has helped you you would feel very thankful about that benefit and you would feel e almost evangelical about it wanting to tell everybody to try it too and it would upset you if you felt other people would be put off from trying it and missing out on those benefits um, the only thing I would say to in response is that these researchers aren't saying mindfulness is bad for everyone they're saying it's bad for some people, a minority of people, actually. But we need to be honest about that. Now it's time to take stock of our place in the bigger picture of the universe. Yes, it's the total perspective vortex. Rowan. Yeah, this is the discovery of the fastest star ever seen. It's called S4714 and it moves at 24,000 kilometres per second, which is 8% the speed of light. Whoa, that's crazy. So how can that be? It's because S4714 is very close to the centre of the galaxy and it orbits the supermassive black hole at the centre. So it's the same principle as with our solar system. The closer you are to the sun, the faster you move. So Earth moves around the sun at about 30 kilometres per second. Mercury and Venus orbit the sun faster because they're closer and Mars and the outer planets go more slowly. And then you've got the sun itself slowly orbiting around the centre of the galaxy because the Milky Way is a spinning spiral galaxy. Yeah, so our solar system takes about 250 million years to complete an orbit of the galaxy, which means the solar system is moving about 200 kilometres per second. But 24,000 kilometres per second, that's just mind-boggling. So how have we spotted this hyper-fast star? It's actually been very hard to observe the galactic centre because in there it's very crowded at the centre. It's full of stars. Um, astronomers have used the very large telescope in Chile. I've been there. Wow. And was that amazing? Did, did that give you a, a, to, you know, a vision of the total perspective vortex? Absolutely. So I stood on a, a mountain sort of 2,600 metres high just staring out at the Milky Way. It was 
incredible seeing the stars just stretch across me like that. I, I didn't even have to look up to see the stars. I just had to look out or wow. even down and I could <laughs> see stars. And I felt really, really, really small and insignificant. So yes, total perspective vortex moment. Okay, so while using the Very Large Telescope, astronomers discovered five new stars around the black hole, and the the most extreme of them is this S4714. One of the scientists said the view from there, if you were on that star, it would be of a sky completely filled with stars, and Sagittarius A star, and that's the name of the black hole, it wouldn't look like a, a big black hole. It would look like a bright star because of all the material being sucked in and burned up in the accretion disk. So the accretion disk, that's the swirling mass of planets and stars all getting crushed and burned as they get sucked into the black hole. Yeah, and uh, if you remember the black hole in the movie Interstellar, it had light stretching and warping around it, and it would look like that. From the star, that's what you'd see. So even light is distorted because of the way gravity works around an object of so massive, such as a black hole, um, according to general relativity. So this star must be a great place to test theories of gravity. Yeah, that's what they want to do now, uh, although they'll probably have to wait for the next generation of telescopes, as at the moment it's just too faint to do those proper experiments. Next up, we've got a story on one of the most remarkable animals on the planet. That's not going too far, is it, Rowan? Definitely not. This is about tardigrades, which are eight-legged animals found all over the world, even in the oceans and in Antarctica. And almost certainly there are some within a few metres of you now, wherever you are. Whoa, that's amazing. Yeah. So they're microscopic, which is why you might not have noticed them. And these, these, are, these are sometimes called water bears, is that right? Yeah, they, they have a few nicknames like that. Water bears, moss piglets is another one because they live in oh. moss. <laughs> yeah, they live in moss. Uh, terrestrial tardigrades live in places that tend to have these cyclical periods of wetting and drying out like moss. But I have to say that calling them moss piglets is very mammalocentric thing to do. Mammalocentric? Yeah, I mean, it's a cute name and all, but, you know, no mammal could tolerate half of what a tardigrade can tolerate. They can survive without water for decades. Uh, They can tolerate high doses of gamma and X-ray radiation that would just kill anything else. They can survive temperatures from almost absolute zero to plus 150 degrees Celsius. And they've even survived 10 days in the vacuum of space. Now, I have another tardigrade fact. I know that they can shrink into a spore-like state. Yeah, that's called a ton, T-U-N. In that ton, they're in what's called a state of cryptobiosis, where their metabolism barely registers. It's suspended animation, basically. They hunker down until things get better. Oh, that sounds quite attractive right now. Yeah, well, funnily enough, that is where we're going with this. Scientists are thinking about how we can get hold of some of this tardigrade resilience. Mm, Sounds good. So what's the news about them this week? The big thing about tardigrades has been figuring out how they're able to be so resilient. And scientists have found that there's a special protein in tardigrade cells that shields the DNA. Uh, This is called damage suppressor protein, DSUP. Um, And the news now is that scientists have simulated the interaction between DSUP and DNA. So what they've created in a computer, the molecules of this thing. Yeah, they've simulated a system of two of these DSUP molecules and DNA comprising more than 750,000 atoms. And they've modelled all the electrostatic interactions between these atoms 
over a 50 millisecond period, which took them days and days to, to run on a supercomputer. And the model shows that the protein is what they call intrinsically disordered. And it's highly flexible. It can adjust its shape precisely to fit DNA. Uh, and this seems to be how the protein forms such an effective shield around the DNA. And it, can, it seems to be able to absorb any kind of stress and protect that DNA inside it. Hang on a minute. Isn't there a giant space tardigrade in Star Trek Discovery? Yeah, yeah, there is. There is indeed. Uh, it helps them navigate through space. But um, well, even real life tardigrades can't teleport through space. But in the show, they splice some genes from the space tardigrade into one of the human crew members, don't they? Yeah, they do. Um, and actually, some scientists have modified human kidney cells with tardigrade DNA and, and made the, the human cells express this DSUP protein. And when, when you get these modified human cells and bombard them with x-rays, they show a reduction in up to 50% in the DNA damage caused uh, that compared to normal human cells. Why? Why would they do that? Well, finding out how tardigrades tolerate these extremes could be useful for cancer treatment and radiotherapy. Uh, but there are futuristic applications such as human hibernation and space travel. Uh, and it does encourage those who imagine a future where, you know, humans travelling to Mars are modified to be more radiation resistant. OK, that's really cool. But um, call me a sceptic, but um, I can't see that happening for quite a while. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to modify the cells throughout the entire body to get the benefit, which is obviously a massive genetic engineering undertaking. Uh, and anyway, what works in a microscopic organism that can go into this cryptobiotic state is maybe not going to work in a in a human. Um, so, yeah, it's much more promising to apply the tricks of tardigrades to things like the stabilization of pharmaceuticals and the engineering of stress tolerant crop plants. So hang on, you said they live in moss. I've got some moss in my front drive. Uh, are you saying there are these amazing beasts just probably living in there? Yeah, almost certainly. I've been filming some tardigrades myself from ones I found in moss in the back garden. Uh, the moss in between cracks in paving stones, they're almost certainly there. It's an amazing thing to see. Uh, these eight-legged animals, like microscopic animals, are just thriving all around us. I'll share a little video clip that I took of this. I want to do that too. Yeah, just get yourself a microscope. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us, Claire, and thanks to you for listening. Remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by using the code POD20 at checkout. We'd love you to spread the word about our show, so do urge your friends and family to subscribe. We're on Twitter at New Scientist Pod, and you can email us at podcasts at newscientist.com. Until next time, take care and goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.